Here we are, November the 10th, 2013, lecture discussion number 131, 131 on the book of Romans. And uh, we find ourselves about a third into the remarkable typology that is uh, within the life of Josiah, uh, the king of Israel that God has um, extraordinary things to say about. And so he becomes uh, the most important king, in my view, uh, perhaps of all Israel. And he has this amazing typology. So does David. So does Solomon. I won't discount that. And, and I recognize that they are considered to be preeminent. But I'm going to tell you that Josiah uh, has so many wonderful mysteries uh, in his brief mention in the Bible that he, be, he becomes, uh, oh, I, I think, the most important of all. So to recap a little bit, Romans 5, 12 through 14, which is where we are. Uh, gives us uh, both the typology of Adam and the contrast of Adam. So I have why he's described like Christ or why he is called a type of Christ in the book of Romans and also that he has a contrast with respect to Christ because of the federal headship that both of them, only the two of them, hold the title of federal head of humanity. Adam is called the first Adam or the first federal head and Christ is called the last Adam or the last federal head of humanity. And so I have this contrast in this typology. And again, what I mean by that is Romans 5, 12 through 14 tells us that the death generation, uh, the mortogenic factor, that which causes all of us to die. We have two kinds of death, as I've pointed out before. We have uh, Adam death and we have Abel death. In other words, we have death from an outside force or we have death through natural aging and decay. Uh, the mortogenic factor is more applicable to the uh, death uh, by uh, decay. That, that mortogenic factor, that death generation is said in Romans 5, 12 through 14 to come through Adam, one man. So the reason that you are dying over time, and it is, as I say, a lot obvious that in my case, you can see it week to week. I'm speeding up now. But uh, the reason that we are dying like this, the aging factor, the decay factor, the mortogenic factor, is that uh, Adam is the first to have sinned, and that was the consequence of his poisoning, if you will. So uh, the first federal head of Adam, or the, of humanity, I'm sorry, <coughs> is the cause of death, and that's what Romans 5:12 through 14 says. And again. All of us die who can trace our father's lineage or the male uh, source back to Adam. And that's everyone in this room. That's everyone who has ever lived except for one. Only one person does not have a, the, does not trace his um, humanity back through to Adam. So therefore, he, the death generation is interrupted. And that person, of course, is not just man, but is also God. So he's the God-man. Or, I really appreciate Acts 2.32, where it calls him Jesus God, all one word. Now, your Bible might have it hyphened, or it might have a comma, but that's not in the original text. He is called Jesus God in Acts 2.32. So, Christ being God, himself in the flesh, uh, Zechariah 12.10, John 1.14, does not have the generation factor in him, as you would expect. God designed his plan of salvation to exclude Adam uh, from his humanity and the contamination that with death that would come through the human fa father. That is why the virgin birth, or if you wish to, to, uh, to have a why, 
It's not the only why, but it is the, the major one. The Holy Spirit is the overshadower of uh, the Virgin Mary. He's the one that hovered, so that God is uh, the Father. Therefore, God is the, um, uh, being the designer and creator of humanity, he knew how to eliminate the human father from the system. That is a, a big duh, right? So you have God as the infant and you have God as the father simultaneously or what uh, is called the holy thing in Luke 1.35. And that, uh, the fact that that happened accomplishes the Davidic covenant promises or prophecies and also means that there was no sin or death in the humanity that Christ has. It is perfect humanity. And you know all of that. So why did I say it again? Because of the visitor. Where is he? Oh, there she is. Your visitor for at least ten lectures. Then we give you a little uniform and a patch and all kinds of stuff. And and some kind of, uh, uh, what do you call the uh, fingernail clipper kit that comes with the uh, comb and everything that they pass out at church. I always thought that was interesting. The personal hygiene kit they will give you when you're a visitor at churches. Um, I always said, well, when I was part of those kinds of organizations, which I have been most of my life, I always say uh, something facetious and say, well, if you're going to say to them that they are in need of personal hygiene, why stop with fingernail clippers and, and tweezers and a comb? I mean, let's go for it. Let's, let's put a bottle of scope in there, some deodorant, you know, shampoo, soap, bar of soap. Let's just give them everything. If we've insulted them, let's just really blast away. That would at least add some comedy to it. So, uh, anyway, I'm kidding, young lady, as you know. <coughs> but you know all about the humanity. It's also for the, uh, for the Internet. You, you know all about the perfect humanity of Christ and why the virgin birth and the mortogenic factor. You've got all of that. Most of you went through that lecture or series of lectures. And you also know that the implications now for the God-man hypostatic union are fundamental. And you know that Jesus Christ has no sin, that he is uh, completely God. And therefore, if he has no sin and he has no contamination, which is impossible to contaminate God, by the way, he's not subject ever to death. He has authority and power over death, which would make sense because he has omnipotence. Omnipotence means all power. He has all the power, right? And also his perfect humanity is subject to his godhood. His perfect humanity cannot act independently from his godhood. It does not and cannot. That, by the way, in the doctrinal schools is peccability versus impeccability. There are those who will say that Christ had the ability to sin. And that's called peccability. And there's my side, which of course we all know is correct, that says that's a joke, but not really. It's a fake joke. We know that uh, the impeccable side is correct. It's the only one that's defendable. But again, he is omnipotent. And once you understand his omnipotence, that changes everything you have, you think about as you get into the crucifixion, for example. You also, also know that his crucifixion now has to be evaluated and it, and it must be consistent with his omnipotence. No one, he says, can take my life. That makes perfect sense when you realize he's omnipotent. Because what's the obvious question? He says that in John 10, 18. 
It is not possible to take my life. That's what he's saying. Because he's omnipotent. Let's ask the obvious question, a mathematical question, right? How much power does it take to get the life out of an omnipotent being? Who has omnipotent power? That's what it takes to get his life from him. So now you understand why he has to give his life up and why he says so. The only one that can do it is, a, is an omnipotent God. And he is omnipotent God. It takes infinite power uh, to take the life of someone who has infinite power. No one can take my life. He makes it as plain as he can. And we don't understand it. I shouldn't say we. You do. This small group does. Only God possesses omnipotence. And, and that one truth solves all of the crucifixion problems that you will run into. All the issues that are thrown at us uh, through all the different uh, medias that are out there and all the different denominations and all the different uh, doctrines that are out there. Once you recognize that he is omnipotent God, most of that stuff will go away for you. All you have to do is say, does that position that I just heard on Ishtar Sunday have any consistency with his omnipotence? You'll find that 99% do not, but we'll get to that in a minute. However, you, us, and me, and we are also, also, also well aware that the overwhelming majority of the contemporary modern 21st century Christian church, again, 99%, teaches and believes that Jesus Christ on the cross was incoherent. He was despairing for his situation. He was weak. He was pathetic. And that he was trapped on that cross. The, every, every sermon, every writing. And all of that, I hope you recognize, is the perfect opposite of omnipotence. You can't get any more opposite of omnipotence than what I just said. So when you say that happened to Christ, then you are saying that his humanity is independent somehow, which is not possible. It's not subject to his deity, which is not possible. That his mind can't control his other mind, because he has the mind of God. And so do you have two minds in him? If you do... By the way, one of the great hoaxes of, uh, of the last 50 years has been the multiple personality hoax. Are you aware of that? And you all saw the movie, The Three Faces of Somebody. That was all a hoax. It was all made up. There is, not, there is no such condition as multiple personality. Look it up. You might not think I'm telling you something that's valid, but go ahead. Check me out. Guys that wrote that book, finally before they died... All admitted it was a complete total fraud. So, be suspicious of the contemporary uh, psychotherapy industry. Anyway, where was I? I off I went. Christ being incoherent, despairing, weak, pathetic, and trapped is the perfect, absolute contradiction to omnipotence, to sinlessness, and to perfection. You cannot have, be sinless, you cannot have perfection, and you cannot be omnipotent if you are weak and despairing and pathetic and trapped. How does trapped on the cross reconcile with all the power? It's not possible to trap infinity, especially if it's infinite power. So if he is on the cross and you think he's trapped, one, you're wrong, two, why is he on the cross? 
Because he chooses to be there. It's impossible to put him there unless he chooses to be there. Okay? That position is in, is reconciliation is in, uh, is collinear with omnipotence. But again, the other view, the one that says he's despairing, weak, pathetic, and trapped, that prevails. That dominates. That is represented in our media. That's in all the books. And by the way, I'm going to say it's the only one you ever read. Uh, uh, Supper Dave and I were talking about it. He's trying to find the other view. you got to go back 100 years or better. I want you to know there is another view. Because the one that dominates, the only one you find now. And I defy anyone to find the Zechariah 12.10 view. There is Zechariah 12.10. I, I, I defy you to find it. Marie was talking about, uh, she had a Jehovah's Witness come to her, uh, to her door, and she said, you need to read Zechariah 12.10. Absolutely perfect response to a Jehovah's Witness. Because they don't know what that verse says. It's in their Bible. They haven't figured out that it contradicts everything they believe. They haven't got rid of it yet, because they changed the other ones in John. They never caught John 8.24. They never caught John 8.58. They never caught Zechariah 12.10. So... Marie did perfect. I, I defy anyone to find the Zechariah 12.10 position in a movie or in a, in a book or depicted in any way by any method by our modern contemporary media. All that you will ever find today is the Christ is fearful, pathetic position or view. And to repeat myself, that's not only dishonoring, but it is the very definition of blasphemy. Luke 23.39. Fear is sin. He says to you all throughout the Bible, what's he say? Fear not. He says it over and over again. Don't fear. Stop fearing. Fear not. Be not fearful. Trust in me. If you're afraid, do you have omniscience? If you're afraid, do you have omnipotence? Is it possible for somebody who is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent to be afraid? Is it possible to be outside of time, the creator of time, and have fear? So when you say that Christ is fearful, you have destroyed his godhood intellectually. Now, you haven't really destroyed his godhood because his godhood doesn't depend on our silly doctrine. So, all of that to tell you that we're busily about refuting this uh, traditional view, which has led us to King Josiah, 1 Kings 13, which is where we're at today, and the unnamed prophet. And that's a very important person in the Bible, in the Old Testament. I, say, I was saying to uh, Supper Dave again before the lecture, you, everything you find in 1 Kings 13, you can find in the life of Christ in the New Testament, in the four Gospels. And you should start looking for it. First you find Christ in 1 Kings 13, and then you go to the Gospels and you find it all again. You would expect it all to be there at a much higher level, right? We'll do some of that today. Uh, I got some phone calls. A wonderful man, um, Jeff in Pennsylvania, called me and talks uh, to me every now and then. And then we had a very good discussion the other day. And we talked about lots of things. And um, and then I had other people as well call me and talk to me about this um, Billy Graham interview on Fox News this past week. And where Mr. Graham disclosed that he accepts and teaches the position that Christ was abandoned by God when he was on the cross. Which, of course, is mathematically impossible. I cannot abandon infinity or omnipresence. Besides that, 
uh, that view that God has abandoned, um, that God abandoned himself, is why I always am just perplexed. It's an inexplicable position that has is so shallow, I don't even begin to know how you could hold it for more than 20 minutes. But it is, again, the majority position. It's in direct opposition to Hebrews 13.5, Deuteronomy 31.6, where God says, I will never, not ever, ever, ever forsake you. I won't do it. I don't abandon people. I, don't ab- I certainly can't abandon myself, and I won't abandon you. But again, Mr. Graham is expressing the common thinking of the church, and I doubt he or any of the others have ever considered the ease in which their position is dismantled. They don't know that Psalm 22 is the hind of the morning, and it's titled as such. They don't know that. I know. I ask them. They don't know the implication, or if you will, the consequences of understanding what's being said in Zechariah 12.10, where God says, that's me on the cross. You're looking at me. God, omnipotent creator, God. They don't, they don't know about Hebrews 13.5, Deuteronomy 31.6, all the places where he talks about uh, what kind of character he has. He's not a person that abandons. They don't read and look at John 10.18 where it requires omnipotence to take his life. Or Romans 5.12-15 through 15, where it tells you that he has no death in him, no sin in him at all. He cannot despair over himself. He cannot. It's impossible. And so, I've come to the conclusion over time that they really want this view. They desire that Jesus Christ be weak and afraid. They want him contradicting his own omnipotence and omniscience and therefore his omnipresence because all three are required. In other words, they love their view. And boy, if you question this view, wrath will befall you. Trust me on that. People don't like it when you tell them that the traditional view of Christ on the cross, the uh, seven stations where he falls and does all kinds of things, predominantly the Catholic position of uh, of his crucifixion, when you tell them that isn't true, never happened. It's not in the Bible. Boy, they're coming. And all of that raises the obvious question to me, the question that I asked them. Why would anyone, if you have that view, the non-Zechariah 12.10 view, the weak Christ view, why would you trust Christ to save or resurrect you, or resurrect anyone, or save anyone, if Christ himself is trapped on the cross? crying for himself, saying that he's being forsaken and abandoned by God, whining, if you will, confused. Why would you trust somebody that's confused and whining and afraid to save you from death or resurrect you? I I equate it this way. If I'm drowning, and I am, and so are all of us, if we're drowning, I want somebody who can swim to save me. I don't want somebody who's just as worried about death as I am. Makes no sense to me intellectually. Never has. I knew it couldn't be true the first time I heard it. There's no way that God can be afraid. It's not possible. It's ridiculous. How do I really feel here? Thank you. Without omnipotence, there is no salvation. 
Without omniscience, there is no salvation. Omniscience and omnipotence requires omnipresence. Without the three omnis, there is no salvation. But again, that fact does not matter to those who love this traditional thinking. So I ask them another simple question. Why would anyone want to believe that their hope of salvation, their Savior, is someone to be pitied? Because that's what they want us to do. I was talking to uh, Kathy in the middle, as opposed to Kathy in the front row, who's now in California. And she said something quite profound, so I stole it. She said, I go to these churches and I listen to these sermons and it's as if, and it isn't as if, they want you to feel sorry for Christ. They want you to pity him. Look how poor, poor, pitiful Christ up there whining and crying about how rough he's got it. He's omnipotent God. You're feeling sorry for omnipotent God. Does that make any sense at all? But that's what they want. And why would anyone want to believe that their Savior is someone that they feel sorry for? Consider the relationship uh, that you have now created. When you feel sorry for someone, what position are you in relative to them? Does that make sense? If I feel sorry for you, what am I saying about me? I am saying I'm what to you relatively? I am in a better position than you. I am superior to you. When you find yourself pitying Christ because of his circumstance, then you are admitting that you are in authority over him. Consider the thin ice doctrinally you're now on. Why would you ever go there? You're feeling sorry for someone you believe is in despair, confusion, trapped, abandoned, and fearing. And there's a hierarchy to pity. Is there any possibility that anyone should ever think this of Christ, the God of creation? Should you ever feel sorry for him? Isn't it obvious that it is God on the cross who is feeling sorry for us? And that we should never, ever think otherwise. We are to worship and glorify. So I want you to decide whether or not feeling sorry for Christ while he's on the cross or while he's going through his crucifixion, you define for me how that is worship. How is that glorifying him? I ask the question, should we ever feel sorry for the omnipotent God? That's how I phrase it to people. And I wait for them to answer that, to logically get that out. And, and figure it through. I'm going to tell you, we should never. Because to feel sorry for him is to an attempt to strip him of his godhood. Uh, which is the reversal of feeling sorry for God on the cross is blasphemy and should uh, be so identified. It elevates us, diminishes him. It's not possible to diminish him, by the way. But nonetheless, that's what we're doing in our own fragile humanity. We're being, we're being foolish. Our job is to mourn for our own sin and to glorify and worship him. And all of that is why we are in Josiah. 
Because when you start to study the chariots, the disguising, the goodness, the temple cleansings of Josiah, he goes and cleans the temple. It's really easy to find the cleaning of the temple part for God, isn't it? We know where Christ cleaned the temple and why. Why did Christ cleanse the temple? Do you know? It's a really, really a one-word answer. Okay, it's a two- or three-word answer. But why did Christ cleanse the temple? It says so. Why did Christ chase out those who sold doves? Let me put that on the board somewhere. They were selling doves, sold doves. Josiah cleans the temple because they are Baal worshippers and they're sacrificing children and they're pagans and they're evil. And Christ cleans the temple because they are also evil. Because they're selling doves. And it says definitively, he overturns the table and chases out the ones that are selling doves. The answer to some of that, by the way, with regard to Josiah, is Jeremiah 7.11. You can remember 7.11, I hope. But isn't it, I hope it is to you, that salvation sacrifice cannot be sold. You can't sell a sacrifice Object or a symbol. A dove is a sacrifice, a sacrificial symbol. A sacrificial dove is not for sale. Why can't you, why does God get mad and throw them not mad in our humanic anthropomorphic way of looking at it, but God is angered, righteous anger, and cleans out the temple just as Josiah did in 1st Kings, I'm sorry, in 2nd uh, uh, Kings 25, 1st Kings 25. But what is so wrong with selling a sacrificial dove? Because salvation is and cannot be sold. It is given by God because the blood of Christ, as you know, is infinite and perfect. And there is no possible way anyone could buy anything that symbolizes that, especially us. So, so there, but there's also more to that story as we should expect. Okay, we left off with the man of God at 1 Kings 13. I'm going to check the time here. And I probably should remind everybody of the key points, uh, lest we leave some of you at the bus station. I don't know how many of you missed last week, and it's a fantastic story, and I'm just going to go through it as quickly as I can. This is an important story, as all of these are, but especially this one because of, again, when I'm telling you this story, start saying, where is Jesus Christ in here? And where is, how does this explain what he says and does in the New Testament? Okay, so here's the recap, right? <coughs> get some, get some medicine. So I can go fast. We have Jeroboam. He's the king of Israel. And he is an apostate evil king. And he decides to have a counterfeit feast day to compete with the Lord's fall feast. So think Jeroboam feast day, if you wish. Instead of trumpets, atonement, and tabernacle, we have Jeroboam's feast day. And he has two golden calves. This is my depiction of them last week. So he's got two golden calves upon which he rests a pagan altar, attaches it. So far, so good. Jeroboam proclaims himself both king and high priest. That's what he does. Now, that's in violation of Mosaic law. Mosaic law says no king can be the high priest. Why is that? Because that is a position that only Christ can have. And Christ does have both, just as Melchizedek did. So now you know that Melchizedek is really who? Jesus Christ. Pre-incarnate Christ. So, 
Jeroboam, in conflict with that, or in contrast with that, if you will, calls himself also the king and high priest. And no one is allowed to do that. Only Christ, who is the high priest and the king of Salem, if you will, or Salam, king of peace, Jerusalem, Jehovah Jireh Salam. God provides peace, what that means. So, Jeroboam now is in the absolute counterfeit position with, reflect, with respect to Christ. Hope you see that. Or if you prefer, what would be the appropriate word to call Jeroboam? He is in what position now? He is in the Antichrist position. He is also saying that he is the high priest and he is also the king. And it's complete with his non-Levite uh, Baal priests that he has in the city of Bethel. So again, back to Elijah and Elisha, 2 Kings 1, 2 Kings 2. So, while Jeroboam feast day is at full throttle, and I made the case last week that they're sacrificing children, and I believe that's the case, and I'll keep fighting for that position as we go through, but it's at full throttle. He's got Jeroboam feast day rolling right now. All this going on. There is a multitude there, thousands of people. And in the middle of that, there's, you know, of this pagan Baal ceremony, God sends an unnamed prophet. You don't know the guy's name. Into the dead, top dead center, right in the middle of that. So put yourself, uh, kind of imagine the position. I have a wild, bloody, vile event. And you walk in the middle of it. That's what this unnamed prophet did. He comes right into the mist. And the unnamed prophet shuts it down. He immediately names Josiah. He says, Josiah by name. Behold, a child whose name is Josiah will come and he'll burn you priests on the very altar that you are burning others. So you're building, burning children, and a child will come and burn you. One of these children that you have burned will not come, but another child will come. And not only that, Josiah will empty the tombs of all of you Baal priests. He'll grab your bones, and he'll burn your bones on the altar. So he's going to burn the priests. He's going to burn the bones. So says the unnamed prophet who walks into the middle of Jeroboam feast day. And after saying this, while he's surrounded by Jeroboam and his palace guard or his military, he's surrounded. How much faith and belief and obedience does that man have? He walks into the middle of that and shuts it down. The unnamed prophet declares that the confirming sign that what he just said about Josiah, the behold, a child will come named Josiah, is true. The confirming sign of that will be the destruction of Jeroboam's new shiny double calf altar of death. And Jeroboam immediately attempts to grab the unnamed prophet once he's seized and they're going to throw him on the altar. Kill him and burn him right there. But the unnamed man of God withers Jeroboam's arm. So as Jeroboam is reaching out, the arm withers. And by the way, that is Antichrist typology also. Zechariah 11:17. So once again, I have the withered 
high priest king, or the withered armed high priest king, in the Antichrist position. So what does that tell you about the unnamed prophet? What position is he in? He is in the Christ position. Train yourself to read these things in the Old Testament, finding Christ. When did we learn Christ's name, by the way? Who told us Christ's name? Because it's a great mystery. Proverbs 30, verse 4. What is the name of the second person of the triune Godhead? Who will know his name? They don't know. Who told us the name of the second person of the triune Godhead? If this was Bible quiz day, we would all, nobody would go home and nothing. That's it. Huh? No, no. Who told us that the name of the second person of the triune God, we know his name, it's what? Salvation. Who told us that name? Gabriel did. Josiah is named. Cyrus is named. Jesus is named. The three of them are named. That tells you there's a relationship between the three of them. Go and look for anybody else in the Bible that is named by a prophet, by a prophecy. Josiah, almost 300 years, 290. Uh, Koresh, 150. Christ. That's all you got. So that tells you, wow, we're going to have to figure out why these three Uh, Really, these two, how they make, what the relationship is to the naming of Christ. Okay, Jeroboam, in the Antichrist position, has the withered hand of the Antichrist now. And the unnamed man of God then, after he withers Jeroboam's arm, he then blows the altar up. Pretty much ending the festivities. It is kind of a downer for the party. And again, in my view, child killing primarily is what's going on there. And then the man of God leaves, obeying God's commandment to eat no bread, drink no water, do not return by the same way you came. So there you got a three-faceted or part commandment. Eat no bread, drink no water, don't leave or don't come back or don't leave the way you came. And that's pretty much the end of part one of our First Kings, uh, First Kings lesson that we're at. Okay, so now part two, Act two, if you want to think of it that way. As the guy is leaving, an old prophet who was not at the Jeroboam. Now think about that; he's not at the Jeroboam feast day. How do I know he's not at the Jeroboam feast day uh, party? He didn't see the, uh, the the altar blowing up party. He wasn't there. How do I know that? Because he asked his sons what happened, and they told him. So his sons are there, but he's not. So I have an old prophet who is not at that, that event, and he chases down the unnamed prophet who, is, who names Josiah. Unnamed, who names? Right? And he lies to him. So he chases him down, and he lies to him. The unnamed prophet re- then returns with the old lying prophet, thus violating the commandment, the three-phase commandment. Eat no bread, drink no water, and don't return the same way you came. So he violates that. And thus, uh, uh, we have this this problem now. And as soon as that has occurred, almost as soon, or eventually after it has occurred, the old prophet then has a prophecy. 
He's not going to prophesy. And his prophecy is, is that the unnamed prophet who came back with him because he lied to him. And by the way, I don't think it's because he lied to him. I'm going to ask the question. Did the unnamed prophet know when the old prophet came that the old prophet was a liar? Yes, immediately. So why does he go back with him? When he knows he's violating the commandment of God and that he will die. And sure enough, the old prophet then prophesies, you're going to die for violating the three-part commandment. I'm telling you, the unnamed prophet already knew that. And a lion, so the unnamed prophet then gets back on his donkey. And he moves on, and a lion comes and kills the unnamed prophet. Who names? That makes sense to you. But does not devour or tear the body, nor does he touch the lion, the donkey. So I have this lion. I'm running out of place. I don't want to get rid of anything. I have this lion, donkey, body thing going on in the middle of the road. Okay? And not only does he not devour the body, but something really odd happens next. The donkey and the lion sit down and wait for the old prophet, essentially. How comfortable is the donkey? <laughs> I, I obviously, it's very comfortable. The donkey did not leave. The lion did not leave. And the body is in the road. What does this mean? Find Christ in the picture. And the old lion prophet does come and retrieve the body. And he buries the body in a tomb that he owns. He buried the body in his own tomb, and eventually he himself was buried in that tomb. And 300 years later, here comes the child Josiah, who is digging up bones of prophets, Baal prophets, and he's burning the bones after he's killed all the priests and burnt them. And he comes across that tomb, and he says, who's in that tomb? And they say, the unnamed prophet that said you were coming and the old lion prophet that said he would die. And Josiah leaves those bones alone. They stay. But all the rest burns them. So what does that tell you about those two prophets? They're set aside by Josiah, whose job is to do what? Clean out the dove sellers. Clean out the ones that are selling salvation and burning children. Because they're really selling death. When you try to sell salvation... You are not selling salvation. You are selling death. There's an absolute opposite as we went through Romans. The Bible tells you there's an absolute opposite. Him who believes, in other words, the opposite of believing is him who works. Him who works is death. Okay, so now we can start today's lecture. And I know what you're thinking. If last Sunday's 57-minute lecture can be reduced to seven minutes, which is what I just did, why not do that every Sunday because there's more buffet time? And obviously, I left out lots of stuff. There's lots of stuff, very important stuff. Uh, if you missed it, it's necessary to, uh, to go and get last week's lecture, get a copy, 
or go to the Internet. The, the review is my attempt to be sensitive to the intermittents, as I call them. Um, intermittents, my new word for those who are unable to come every Sunday. Okay, let's ask some more obvious questions now. Jeroboam wants his withered hand restored. Did you remember that part? Let's go and read that really fast. Jeroboam is uh, got his hand, okay? Um, after he blew up the altar, then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please, uh, would you pray to your God and that my hand might be restored to me? So Jeroboam, he realizes the altar just got blew up. The guy, the sign is true. Josiah is going to come. And there's going to be a whole lot of burned up priests. And things aren't good. But Jeroboam's looking at his hand going, this is bad. i got to have his hand fixed. Would you, who just blew up my altar and told me you're going to kill everybody, would you ask your God to fix my hand? And so the man of God prayed to the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. And I told you that almost reminds us of, the, of Moses and the leprous hand. But that's the obvious question. Why does God, why does Jeroboam want his withered? What's he thinking? I mean, he's in a, a this is a big problem going on. Why does he want his hand restored? And then why does God do it? What's this mean? Find Christ in the story. It is a clear antichrist symbol, this withered hand. So, why did Jeroboam re receive the symbol? He clearly is in the antichrist position. And then why did he ask that it get removed and his hand go back? And the way to approach that question is to do what? First, find it in the New Testament. Christ has to do whatever happened to Jeroboam has to happen. Whatever the withered hand means in First Kings 13, there has to be an exact complement, if you will, but on a much higher level. Jeroboam is not the Antichrist, is he? He's a picture of the Antichrist. So approach the question by asking the inverse this time. What if Jeroboam's hand had remained withered? Because God restores it. What would have been the consequences if Jeroboam goes through with a withered hand? Because Jeroboam looks at his withered hand and goes, not good. Got to have my hand back. All he cares about, give me my hand back, because that ain't good. So why is it bad? What would have been Jeroboam's problem? had the hand remained withered? Obviously, Jeroboam figured out the problem of having a withered hand, and he knew how to get it fixed. Sorry I tried to kill you. I was going to burn you on the altar. No hard feelings. I'll give you a reward. Nobody believed that. Certainly not the prophet. By the way, he knew that was a lie. That unnamed prophet knew that was a lie. So when the old prophet came, he knew that was a lie too. This is a guy that knows lies. He wasn't fooled by the lying prophet, old prophet. This is he wasn't fooled by the Antichrist type. Jeroboam figured out that i got to get this withered hand fixed because I tried to kill this unnamed prophet. didn't go my way. And i got problems. Jeroboam knew what was happening. He also knew why he should have uh, two calves. He didn't need one calf. got to have two this time. Two calves. 
Yeah, oh, you've got to ask that obvious question. I had the one calf of who? Exodus 32. Aaron makes one calf. But now i got two. Why do I have two this time? Jeroboam knew why he had to have two calves. Two golden calves have a meaning. Meaning, God destroys this altar. Moses, when he witnessed the first golden calf, Exodus 32, 19 through 24, what did he do with it? He grounds it up into powder, and then what's he do with that? He feeds it to them. And then he says, he, make, he makes the worshipers of the first golden calf eat it. Jeroboam think that's going to happen here? Did Jeroboam know the story? He knows why he has to have two calves. Is he about to have a diet of powdered golden calf? There's more to it. How's my time? Terithi. Terithi. Seven. We need to read Exodus 32, 19 through 24. We'll do it next week. It's, that's the lie of Aaron, by the way. Aaron lies there. He says, I don't know what happened. I asked people for a bunch of gold and I threw it in there and woo, this golden calf pops out. That's what he says. Moses didn't buy it. It's a lie. A whole lot of lying going on here. And Exodus 32.4 makes it clear that Aaron lied. Aaron made the calf himself. So I have this relationship between Aaron and the first golden calf lie and the old priest that lied and Jeroboam who lies. i got all this lying here. In any event, uh, with Moses, a war is fought. Immediately Moses says, those who are on the side of God, come over here because we're going to kill the ones that are not. But 3,000 fight and die. 3,000 die, for sure. And by the way, that sends us to Acts 2.41, where 3,000 live. So I have this relationship between Exodus 32 and Acts 2. But for today, ask this question. Why did Aaron make a calf? I've always, the first time I ever read it, I said, a calf. What's a calf? I'm going to worship a calf? What, what, why a calf? Why not a, you know, an elephant? How about an ox? We, we, we still worship cows today, don't we, in certain parts of the world? What is it about a calf? What is a calf? It's a cow. What kind of cow? By the way, is it female calves or male calves? As Bill starts bringing up the ashes of the red heifer as soon as you say calf. Being a farmer, Bill would know that. It's an infant isn't it? A calf is an infant animal. If I told you, I'm going to bring a calf in here, what would I walk up here and put on stage? A full-grown bull? No. You'd say, that's not a calf. That's a bull. We're out of here. But if I brought, I always love the animal people, the churches that would bring animals up on stage. What could possibly go wrong bringing in sheep and, and cattle? You know, horses. And I, I love the people on the corner. I had to drive by them. It's 35 below and they're out there in their living nativity scene. Freezing. But there, there they were with their goat. It was hilarious. And I always wanted to have one of those <laughs> just because I can't stop myself from laughing. Because I wanted to get up here with a straight face and say, okay folks, we're going to have a living nativity scene. <laughs> Who wants the midnight to six in the morning shift? <laughs> and try to put pressure on people to actually do it. 
I always wondered, how could you get, could you ever get me? That's how I think about it. I'm sitting in church and the pastor says, we're going to send this uh, sign-up sheet around and you're going to sign up to be in the living nativity in the middle of winter, the darkest possible, coldest day we got. <laughs> I couldn't, you couldn't get me to do it. But I always wanted to see if I could get somebody else to do it. It occurred to me that would be amusing. That is how I think. Sorry. Why did Aaron make a calf? Why an infant animal, a newborn, essentially? Note the unnamed prophet presents as a contrast between the infant calf to the child will come Josiah. Those are in contrast. The calf, the two golden calves, the two golden infant cows, if you will, are in contrast to the single child that will come that is a type of Christ. And eventually, uh, we're going to have to get into this because Judas did what to Christ in Gethsemane? That explains the golden calves. He kissed him. The solution to why, and Jesus even asks you, doesn't he? Judas, why do you greet me with a kiss? Because the golden calves explain that. Hosea 13.2. Hosea 14.2. So next week we'll get into that. Jeroboam understood calf kissing. We should also. Now, moving along. Notice again, Josiah by name, 1 Kings 13, Cyrus by name, Isaiah 44, 28, and Jesus by name, Luke 1, 31. Josiah burns and kills priests who kiss calves and burns their bones. If you're a calf kisser, you're going to get burned. God's going to burn you. Josiah is a, is a type of Christ. What does calf kissing mean? Why a calf? Cyrus makes the proclamation of Cyrus, or Koresh makes the pop, proclamation of Koresh, which returns the exiles from Babylon that lays the foundation of the new temple in Jerusalem. And Daniel, by the way, Josephus says, if you read the Antiquities of the Jews, that Josephus says that Daniel sat down with Cyrus, who was named by Isaiah 150 years before he came in to the picture. He read that proclamation that Ezra wrote. And Cyrus was so moved that he made the proclamation. He knew, wow, that's me. I'm in the Bible. And the Jews returned. So put those two together. Josiah kills priests who kiss calves. Cyrus returns the exiles from Babylon to rebuild the temple, the house of God. Put the two halves together and begin to notice Jesus Christ's fulfillment of both. And now I want you to apply that putting together the twos. I want you to apply that process to the two chariots of Josiah. He's got two chariots. He dies in one and he's moved to the other. Or he's killed, or almost killed in one, moved to the other. He goes out disguised. No one knows he's the king. He's in the first chariot. Uh, upon his death, he's moved after that to the second chariot. I have two prophets, by the way, don't I? I have an old, a new, unnamed prophet who tells us about Josiah and that the altar will split and priests will burn, and the old prophet who says the unnamed prophet will die. So I have two prophets, two prophecies. Obviously, I have to put them together. I have a lion and a donkey. All of that. Josiah and Cyrus. And hopefully you've equated Josiah disguising himself and riding in the first chariot with Christ riding on the donkey. Thank you. 
as he enters Jerusalem. Hopefully you see those are the same. Have you noticed that the unnamed man of God prophet rides a donkey, as does the old prophet? Have you noticed that Christ is attached to both symbols, the lion and the donkey? He rides a donkey into Jerusalem. He is called the what? The lion of Judah. He rides the donkey into Jerusalem in his first coming, his first advent. He is the lion of Judah in his second advent, or his second coming, right? And he riding that donkey, he, when he is crucified, Christ is disguised. But he begins to remove the disguise and tell you, that he's the lion. There's not going to be a disguise when he returns as the lion of Judah. Who killed the unnamed prophet? If I asked you right now, who killed the unnamed prophet? Somebody killed him. Who killed him? The lion. The unnamed prophet was killed by a lion. Not any lion. The lion. That's very important. The lion did it. I answered a question right there, much to the dismay of Bill O'Reilly again. Bill O'Reilly thinks the Romans killed the unnamed prophet. The Romans did not. The Jews did not. You cannot kill an omnipotent being. The omnipotent being must kill himself, if you will, lay his own life down. It is not a coincidence that the lion killed the unnamed prophet. The unnamed donkey-riding prophet who withers the hand of Jeroboam and therefore identifies Jeroboam as the Antichrist type. So somewhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ would identify the Antichrist. Has to. And he does. Over and over and over again. He says, that is the son of perdition. Does it all the time. Christ repeatedly identifies the Antichrist. So you know now that the unnamed uh, unnamed prophet is obviously a type of Christ. The bones of the man of God are not what? Does the lion devour the unnamed prophet? No. Does he break any of his bones? No. His death, or his corpse, if you will, his body, is between the lion and the donkey. So I have the donkey, I have the body, I have the lion. Makes perfect sense. In the middle of the road. What's the road? You can do this. He is the creator of the created order. The man of God is sent... He comes into the midst of the withered hand king's counterfeit and and he destroys the calves. And he should have left, we think. But a lion prophet comes along and seems to convince him to stay. But he knows it's a lie. And if I'm right, and I'm... Of course I'm right. She wits. Then why does he go back and violate the commandment of God? Because if you violate the commandment of God, you're going to divide, you're going to die. Instead of leaving, he goes ahead and eats and stays and communes with a lying prophet and, and forfeits his life because of it, knowingly, 
And then he's buried in a tomb that's not his. And thus the difficult, obvious questions now come. Why did the old prophet chase the unnamed prophet? Proverbs 30, verse 4. What was his motive for lying to the unnamed prophet? Did the unnamed prophet know that the old prophet was lying? Yes, start approaching it from that direction. You'll solve it when you do. Then why did he go with him if he knew that he would forfeit his life if he did? If he stays and eats with them and communes and and talks and is adjacent to them and walks among all of this wickedness that is in Baal and Bethel. See, it results in his death. Did he know it would result in his death? Yes, he did. He's not a dumb unnamed prophet. You can't fool him. He went with the lying prophet knowing it would lead to his death. Why? I hope you can figure that out. He didn't see, uh, by the way, the lying prophet at, uh, at the Jeroboam feast day counterfeit. Didn't see him there. So what did he know about the old prophet that lied to him immediately? He knew this is somebody that didn't attend the feast day. His sons did, not him. And as soon as he found out a guy blew the place up, he chased after him. And then he buries him, and he gets buried with him. And his bones aren't disturbed by Josiah. What do you know about this old prophet now? The death of the man of God is prophesied by this old prophet. He prophesies about the death of the man of God. Who gets to do that? Who even knew that the man of God, the God-man, the Jesus God, would have a death? The old prophet did. And he goes out and he sees the lion and the donkey and the body. And he takes the body. Somebody would take the body and put it in a tomb in the New Testament. Who did that? Joseph and... And Nicodemus. The man of God would die because he stays, I'm repeating this, he eats and he has contact with people who live in a wicked place that God has rejected. We should expect that to happen. Find Christ in the story. He's everywhere in the story. And find who he identified as the Antichrist. Whose hand did he say was withered in the New Testament? That opens up the whole whole Judas thing for you. Let's rise and be this man.